I got some handouts. Now, obviously, uh, 20 minutes isn't going to be enough time to do justice to the last 2,000 years of Christian thought on the subject. So, uh, we're going to just have to skim. And uh, you can just pass out. There's only 20 of them, so I think we got more people than that, so we're not going to be able to get everybody. Uh, uh, it's going to be able to get one out. What I do have, too, for a follow up, I, I don't need to get these back. These are a debate I debated a philosophy professor at Lower Columbia College, Dr. Peter John, was his name is a skeptic. I debated him on God's existence. It's a two and a half hour debate. Um, they got a big show, and about 400 people there. And uh, I'm just going to pass it around. If you want to, if you really want to watch it, watch it. But when you get done watching it, pass on to others who want to watch it, and eventually somebody can keep it. I don't care who people who make plenty of copies, but uh, so just read them. Just pass them around. If you haven't, if you if you've seen it already, the same debate I did earlier. If you want to watch it again, you good. Yeah, all the same debate. Um, now, uh, the the course that. Uh, the course that Gordy's teaching in basic uh, Christianity, uh, I prepared that next the, the next lesson. He taught the first one last week. So we can do that after the study if you want. Uh, however, if you do want to continue the discussion on God's existence, which might be a good idea, we can do that as well. So so we can go either way on that. So if you have questions, we can we can talk on it later. Now, if you look at the the handouts there, uh I listed five different types of arguments for God's existence. It even goes beyond that. There's many different types of arguments for God's existence. These are probably the, the five of the most familiar ones. I'm going to start from the bottom because I think they get stronger as you go up. Uh, the ontological argument, uh, St. Anselm, back in uh, uh, about the 11th century, he came up with that. He, he argued that the idea of God, just the concept of God, God, by definition, must exist. Now, it gets into a lot of deep thought, and there's still philosophers to this day, some leading non-Christian philosophers. Benedict Spinoza, who was a pantheist, believed that this was a uh, valid argument for God's existence. Uh, uh, Hartshorn, and, uh, who's a panentheist, uh, he also hosted the ontological argument. It's a real tough one to understand. Uh, I don't think it's valid, but I'm not as convinced as somebody like Norman Geisler or Thomas Aquinas that it's not valid, but I, I don't really think it's valid, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. The argument from religious experience argues that all men sense a need for God. It's kind of keys on what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but in every utterance of the mouth of God. Man is more than just a physical being. He's also a spiritual being, and hence he has a spiritual thirst for God. Now, sometimes we try to quench that thirst with alcohol or with sexual immorality or with all types of things. That's called idolatry. When you, when you try to quench that thirst you have for God with anything but God. Uh, but this argument from religious experience is a pretty, pretty good argument. It's not real, it's not as good as uh, some of the other ones, but it is pretty good in that people like Jean Paul Sartre. Uh, also, they, some people refer to him as Sartre. One of his uh, 
Marx's colleagues, uh, though, referred to him as Sartre, so I would think being one of his friends, he would know better. But whatever the case with Sartre, uh, even he admit, openly admitted that he wished that God existed, that he had, there was a need that he had for God to exist, but he didn't believe that God existed. He's an existentialist. I don't want to get into all his, his thought there. Um, Kaufman, uh, the guy who edited uh, uh, the portable Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche's works, the, uh, the uh, German philosopher and atheist, the guy who coined the phrase, God is dead. Well, the guy who edited Nietzsche's work, he referred to man in the introduction, and he's an atheist himself, Walter Kaufman, he refers to man as the God-intoxicated ape. The ape, you know, just believes in evolution, atheistic evolution, but we're so intoxicated with the God concept that it just, it's everything about man. Secular, the Humanist Manifest was one of two. They deny God's existence, yet they openly admit that there is nothing in man that is alien to the religious realm. Man is a religious being. It is at the essence of his being. And so the argument for religious experience argues that even many leading atheists openly admit that having a need for God, they just don't believe there's anything to meet that need. Then the argument would follow that in every other case, whatever man needs... It's there. It's somewhere. You may not get there. You may be dying of thirst. You may need water and be dying of thirst in the desert. But the fact is, there is some drinking water somewhere on this planet. And so the argument will go that man finds that there's somewhere somewhere where man's needs can be met. We may not get to it. We may not find God. But there's a high degree of probability that God is probably there. Now I want to go to what I think are the stronger arguments, the moral argument argues that the universal moral law implies a universal moral law giver. Uh, the Apostle Paul even argued that way in Romans 2, 14 and 15 that uh, even the non-Jew who did not have the Old Testament law had his own conscience convicts him when he does wrong. His own conscience tells him what is right and what is wrong. And we sear our consciences. But at the same time, God has given each and every one of us a glimpse of his moral standards in our conscience. Now, the way C.S. Lewis would argue there is that lots of people deny the existence of absolute moral laws. The problem is, though, they continually make moral judgments. I mean, uh, Bertrand Russell, who was at the, the, you know, here's a guy who louder than just about anybody else says that there is no such thing as right and wrong. Just what we're doing, A.J. Ayer says we just express emotions and all. Well, what did Russell do? Russell was uh, uh, a no-new. Uh, he was a pacifist during World War One. He led protests all through the streets of Great Britain. He coined the phrase, better red than dead. But if there is no such thing as right and wrong, why is he constantly standing up for what he believes is right? And so people deny there's any such thing as right and wrong, but if you punch them in the nose, they will call the police. And they will charge you with assault. So, uh, but the, the fact is, if there is such a thing as moral standards, right and wrong, that are above men, then that strongly implies that there must be a moral lawgiver above man as well. And we're not talking quantitatively adding men and saying, well, I think that moral law just comes from society. Well, the problem with that, well, first let's start at the lower end. Some people say the moral law begins in the person. You just, what's right for Frank is right for Frank doesn't have to be right for me and vice versa. 
problem with that is then Frank can't call another individual like the actions of another individual like Adolf Hitler. He can't call them wrong. So then Frank might say, well, let's appeal to a higher standard, a bigger group of people. The society decides what is right and wrong. Well, now you got the same problem. How can the United States call Nazi Germany wrong because they put Jews, innocent Jewish people, in ovens? So you, in one society, you can't... If society is the inventor of moral laws, then one society can't call the actions of another society wrong. Uh, and so eventually what you've got to find is something not, not quali quantitatively adding more people and taking a vote, the majority wins, and that's right and that's wrong. You need something qualitatively, because moral law is qualitatively above man, therefore you need a moral law qualitatively above men, i.e. the God of the Bible. Um, the teleological argument is the argument from design. It argues that the universe shows tremendous order and complexity and beauty, and therefore it would take an intelligent designer to put this design in the universe. Uh, uh, William Paley started this argument uh, many years ago called Paley's Watchmaker, that if you were walking through the wilderness and had never seen a watch before in your life, and you found a, you found a rock, a stone, you would know, yeah, what is part of nature, but if you found a watch, and you took it apart and saw all these pieces working together, for a purpose, and everything synchronized so well that you would conclude this is this is a product of design, and it must there must have been an intelligent designer who designed it. Uh, the problem with the teleological and the moral arguments is that those arguments do go a long way to show an intelligent mind and a uh, uh, some type of moral lawgiver, some type of legislator. But there is the possibility that there could be more than one, more than one designer. Because, for instance, this building here shows evidence of design, but I doubt very much that only one person designed it. There were probably a few people who got together and uh, drew up the plans. And the same with the moral argument. Uh, however, when you get to the cosmological argument, the deeper and more thorough versions of the cosmological argument, uh, i.e., uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, make some really good, solid arguments that there can only be one ultimate, infinite being. Uh, it's a contradiction to say that there's two infinite beings because, and by the way, the cosmological argument argues from the effect to the cause. It argues that the universe needs a cause. And we're going to look a little bit further at the cosmological arguments in, in uh, I think we've got about, what, ten minutes left? Okay. Uh, we're going to look a little bit further at the cosmological argument uh, in, in just a minute. Now, the verses that I list there, you get a chance to read some of those verses, like, for instance, Romans 1, 18-22. Paul says that man has no excuse for turning his back on God because the invisible God has proven his existence through his visible creation, through the work of his hands. And uh, so Paul uses somewhat of a cosmological-type argument uh, for God's existence. Now, there's three different types of cosmological arguments, and they're the first three that I give after that first overview on arguments for God's existence. Uh, by the way, the arguments against God's existence, uh, it is openly admitted by the leading non-Christian philosophers 
Some of them are even the guys that formulated these arguments in their modern form. There's usually no such thing as a new argument. You just take something from an atheist or from a Christian from hundreds of years ago and just update them. But uh, uh, pretty, there's pretty much good solid agreement. Very few people like Kai Nielsen, there's very few guys like Kai Nielsen, few atheists, that really believe that you can positively prove that God does not exist. Most of your atheists are now calling themselves agnostics and admit that it is possible that God exists. There's no way to logically, uh, with, with, a, with a degree of certainty, disprove God's existence. So basically what I'm saying, the atheistic arguments have failed. Nobody has really, the people, professors will act like that in college, will act like the book has been closed on this for a thousand years, not so. And if you want to see how good a guy like Kai Nielsen, who does believe you can disprove God's existence, you want to see how good he can do, get the book, God, uh, Does God Exist? The debate, the transcript of the debate between J.P. Moreland, who got his Ph.D. in philosophy from USC and, and now teaches at Talbot Seminary in, in L.A. Um, J.P. Moreland uh, debated Kai Nielsen on God's existence. And both the atheists and the Christians uh, philosophers who responded to that debate also enclosed in the book in appendixes uh, they all agreed that, uh, that Kai Nielsen did not do very well uh, but uh, Kai Nielsen tries to say the concept of God is contradictory it's the same old arguments coming from, from way back when and uh, they do not really hold much more so in essence the, uh, the, the Christian it, it is open it is open, the debate is open to continue to provide evidence for God's existence, the atheist has not, contrary to popular belief, wanted, and it's over. It's like Carl Sagan says, you can't be an intelligent man living in the 20th century and still believe that God exists. Uh, but there are far more intelligent men than Carl Sagan that have PhD degrees in philosophy from some, in fact, you got philosophy professors like Dallas Willard, a uh, philosophy professor that teaches at USC. Uh, one of the wisest men in our country today. And you've got plenty of these guys. If you want a list, one of these days I'll produce a list. It'll, uh, it'll, believe me, it'll take me a while to come up with a list because there's an awful, awful lot of scholars all over this country uh, that do believe that God exists uh, and provide evidence for it. Thomas Aquinas' argument, I think all we're going to have time to do is uh, three, there's three different types of cosmological arguments I think the best, but the hardest to understand, is the cosmological argument from existential causality, used from Thomas Aquinas. Um, he's basically arguing for the cause of the continuing existence of something. Okay, Aquinas is not arguing. 99.9% of the guys who think they refuted Aquinas, all these modern-day geniuses, they don't even understand that he's not arguing from sufficient reason. That was Leibniz, who came much later. He's the next argument answer it. Um, Aquinas is not arguing for the cause of the beginning of the existence of the universe or something in the universe. He's not, he's not arguing for the, the cause of the beginning of something. He's arguing for the, the cause for the continuing existence of something. So he's not arguing for God as the creator. He's arguing for God as the sustainer. He's arguing more like, uh, not like my father and mother as the, one who, the ones who brought me into this world. Uh, Aquinas is arguing more like me as the cause of my reflection in that window. So if I left this room, the reflection would immediately remove there. I, I am 
the sustaining cause of my reflections in that window. So let me read Aquinas' argument there. He argues that beings which are dependent, and by the way, I have simplified these arguments. They are much deeper and much more in-depth. And uh, uh, to refute these, you would have to really see them in their spelled out form. You'd have to see them in their fuller, more thorough form. And they, they are not uh, as easy to refute. You might find something in there. I try to simplify as much as possible, hopefully without losing any of the force of the argument that's usually uh, not possible to do. Aquinas argues like this. Beings exist which are dependent on other beings for their continued existence. You know, I depend on water, food for my continuing existence, air. Uh, dependent, point two, dependent beings cannot be the ultimate cause of the continuing existence of other dependent beings. You know, there might be some, something that I'm keeping, if, if, or if, for instance, air might be something that helps keep me alive, but if air itself is a dependent being, it can't keep itself alive, and so ultimately, it's not really what the ultimate cause of my continuing existence, so we've got to find the ultimate cause for that would also be the ultimate cause for my existence. You understand where, where he's getting at there? Point C, adding dependent beings never gives us an independent being. In other words, if all we find in the universe is dependent beings, you add the whole thing up together, and what do you get? A dependent being, okay? Uh, now, some will accuse this of being a philosophical fallacy uh, that the, the whole is not always the sum of the parts, but there you've got to get into the, there's a big, Big debate on that issue, but this does not fall for that fallacy if that fallacy is rightly understood. And in other words, if you look at a little a trunk, and then you look at a tusk, and you look at a little tail, you put those, those little parts don't look like anything, but you put them all together and you got an elephant. But the fact is, each part of that elephant is dependent and is uh, limited. And so when you put the whole thing together, you get a dependent elephant. An elephant that's dependent on something else for its existence as well. Anyway, point four, the ultimate cause for the continuing existence of all dependent beings, i.e. the universe, must be an independent being. Let's say that there was a cause of the universe, the continuing existence of the universe, but it wasn't a totally independent being. It was dependent on something else for its existence. Well, then you go back to the, the cause of that existence, but you keep going back, eventually you would have to arrive at the first, uh, a totally independent being that was dependent on nothing else for its existence. The infinite regress arguments, uh, there's a good solid arguments against infinite regress, and we're going to try to cover one in about 30 seconds here. But let's take a look at the, the argument that Bonaventure used. And by the way, Norman Geisler is the, one of the leading modern-day Thomists. He followed the Aquinas uh, type argument. Uh, his book, Christian, Philosophy, uh, uh, Christian Apologetics and uh, Philosophy of Religion, uh, will give the, the modern version of that argue, argument of Aquinas. Bonaventure, William Lane Craig, uh, argues along the lines of Bonaventure, the Kalam cosmological argument, which was actually founded by the uh, Islamic philosophers. But he argues that whatever had a beginning needs a cause. Well, that's pretty obvious. If something had a beginning, it couldn't, it couldn't cause itself to come into existence because then it would have to pre-exist its own existence in order to bring its own existence about, and that's, that's ludicrous. That's self-refuting. 
So whatever had a beginning, since from nothing, nothing comes, nothing can, can do nothing, nothing can cause nothing. Therefore, something had to pre-exist whatever had a beginning in order to cause it to come into existence. So whatever had a beginning needs a cause. Number two, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, number three, the universe needs a cause. Uh, now, let me just say this. There is good evidence, solid evidence for the beginning of the universe, both scientific and philosophical. Scientific, the Big Bang model teaches that as we go forward in time, the universe is getting, is expanding, getting further and further apart. If you go backwards in time, that means it's getting closer and closer together. It looks like a big, the effects of a big explosion. So if you go back in time, eventually you go back far enough, you reach a point where scientists call infinite density. Well, something can only be finitely small, finitely dense. If something is infinitely small, it means that it is nothing. They don't like saying nothing. It sounds too much like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So they say infinite dense, density. Or they will also say a point of dimensionless space. But whenever you have no dimensions, you have no space, you have nothing. Uh, now, um, the, uh, but anyway, there's good scientific evidence. Also, second law of thermodynamics, the amount of energy remains constant at the first law of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics says that the amount of usable energy is running down. So eventually, all the energy in the universe will, will be run down. It'll be totally useless energy. Which means if you go back in time, eventually you reach a point where all the energy in the universe uh, was usable. Now, if the universe is eternal, then you, you, would, you would find the same amount of usable energy. Either new energy would be coming into the universe, or uh, the energy would never be able to be used up. Uh, you'd be able to burn the same log twice. If you completely burn the log and there's nothing but ashes left, you'd be able to still burn it again and again and again and again. Uh, so there's good scientific evidence. Philosophical evidence about the impossibility of an infinite regress. If you look on page AP 17, uh, I argue for that point D, the, that the universe cannot be eternal, because if the universe was eternal, it would mean that there would have to be an actual infinite set of finite events in time. Okay. Now, but an actual infinite set of finites is impossible. Look at set A, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and on and on infinitely. It's an infinite set. Set B, only the odd numbers. It's half of set A, 1, 3, 5, 7, 9. goes on and on infinitely. And set C is only one-tenth of, of set A and one-fifth of set B. It goes 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Yet, all three of these sets are equal because they all have an infinite number of members. Yet, all three of these sets are not equal, so set A is twice as large as set B, and ten times as large as set C. Now, any view that generates contradictions and absurdity is false. Therefore, you cannot have uh, an eternal universe, because then you'd have to have an infinite set of events, of finite events. Also, point six there on page AP17, if the universe is eternal, we can never reach now because it's impossible to traverse an actual infinite set of finite events. Uh, for instance, no matter how many events you would have crossed to reach now, to reach the moment now, in order to reach the moment now, you would still have to cross an infinite number more of events. You would never get to here. 
But the fact that we are here lets us know there had to be a first event. Okay? Um, we're, we're out of time. Zeno's Paradox, just I just want to mention, Zeno's Paradox, that should read impossible to traverse uh, an actual infinite set of finite points. I think I left out the word actual, that's important. Uh, or I left out the word infinite. Whatever word I left out, it should be an actual infinite set of finite points. Zeno's Paradox showed all he said was to get from point A, this table, to that point B, that wall, before I can get from point A to point B, I've got to get halfway. Then before I get from this uh, midway point to point B, I've got to get halfway. Then before, I'll never reach that point. You know, the paradox won't let me. Uh, before I can get from this point to that, that wall, I've got to go halfway, 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 halfway. You never reach. What he said was, therefore, movement is impossible. No, what he failed to realize is between point A and point B, you can have an infinite set, a possible infinite set of finite points, a potential infinite set. And that's what he was doing, just the potentiality. But to have actual infinite sets, such as something like pens or, or Bibles, a Bible is an actual thing. It's not a hypothetical thing like splitting things in half, which is what... Uh, 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 hypothetically, splitting things in half was what Zeno was doing. If you put Bibles in line of Bibles, it'll only be a finite number, a limited number of Bibles. You could never have an infinite number of Bibles. Uh, because if you had an infinite number of Bibles, you could always add one more, then you'd have an infinite, infinite plus one, which is a contradiction. That's all I have time for, but, um, but basically, with the impossibility of an infinite regress, that shows that there has to be an e one eternal cause of the universe which brought the temporal universe into existence. Uh, there really is no other option there. This can be defended if you, if you do need to be a little skeptical about it or whatever, and you want to learn more about it, you can watch that debate. I will say this, the objections that the philosophy professor raised against me were not very strong. Um, I wish that he would have been a little bit more competitive, and then that would have brought out uh, uh, some more evidences that I could have brought out, but I never had to tap into them. He just basically did not mess with my argument. He admitted it was kind of over his head, and he just didn't want to lock horns on it. But uh, non-Christian philosophers that teach philosophy, they should be reading current Christian scholarship and current Christian thought. And if, as long as they continue to ignore it, they will not win the debates for God's existence, because there's a lot of good thought as of late there. That's about all I have time for. So, uh, I don't... Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time given. Father, uh, we ask that you uh, would guide us and direct us to the session moment. We thank you for our friendship, for our friends who are uh, looking for uh, answers. And, uh, Father, we just ask you a special blessing. Okay, uh, uh, first, does anybody have any questions, uh, there's probably a million questions, about what was uh, covered, just maybe general questions, we don't have uh, a real lot of time, I want to get to uh, some of Dave's questions, but, but if you have a, a real general question that maybe we can get out of, out of the way real quick, that, that'd be good. I did have one in the last concept we were talking about when you were 
going from the wall, mm -hmm. the signal to the wall, yeah. and discussing an infinite number of yeah, and but at, and at the same time, it's what uh, see what Zeno had done was he had he was dealing with the realm of uh, potentialities, potentials, things that don't necessarily exist. They they don't exist, but they could possibly exist. Like a unicorn yeah. is uh, is a potential being, whereas a square circle is an impossible being. Uh, a human is an actual being. Okay, we actually do exist. Um, maybe you don't have a twin brother, but that would be a potential being. Uh, but it's not an actual being. It wouldn't be an impossible being. But to, to be a a man who is a non-man, that's an impossible being. So what Zeno did, and this is where Aristotle, because see, uh, Thomas Aquinas is Aristotelian in his thought whereas Augustine was Platonic in his thought, Aristotle uh, saw that the fallacy in Zeno was that he did not draw a distinction between potentials where you can have a potentially infinite set. The three sets that I gave you were all potentially infinite sets. Uh, but to have an actual infinite set is a whole other thing, and that's what Aquinas argued against. I mean, what Aquinas and others argued, and Bonaventure especially argued against. Uh, so he did not draw that, that distinction, Zeno. Now, I will say this. If the distinction between the potential and the actuals that Aquinas drew and that Aristotle drew before him, if modern scientists don't like that distinction, if they don't like it, and let's see them refute Zeno. Because if they don't accept Aristotle's refutation of Zeno, then Zeno's con conclusion follows. Movement is impossible. Change is impossible. Therefore, we are all one being. Pantheism. And so if scientists do not like uh, the way Aristotle and Aquinas responded to him, they should—they better come up with a response because the whole basis for modern science collapses if Zeno, uh, if Zeno's paradox holds weight. But what he did not—he did not differentiate between potentials, you know, just, uh, rather than actual, like an actual thing like pens. You can only get a, a finite number of pens between point A and point B. Well, what I was thinking of when you're going through that is that, you know, we can say that there was maybe an actual number of pens between one point and another. Mm -hmm. But in, in the real world, right now in space and time, um, would the fact simply that we divide a time segment up into a minute or a second, the very fact that we can do that, does that make those actually real points or real items or articles like the pen backed up? Well, the pen is an actual thing. Yeah, the pen is. Well, uh, but when, but our measurements can be they can be based on uh, you know the uh, measurement is just potentiality. So you're dealing with that realm because you're measuring something. You know, you use something uh, something actual as a standard for your measurements. But your measurements are you know potentiality. You know, ba based on what what it is exactly that you are measuring. So, so there, you can you know, dividing time, cutting it in half, cutting it in half, cutting it in half, and all that type of thing. See, and here's where you, you, a lot of these dilemmas uh, uh, 
Plato thought that, you know, uh, uh, um, Augustine saw that Plato's big problem was he had all these universal, eternal ideas, the forms, the concepts. They're invisible, they're eternal, they're unchanging. And he had all of these ideas out there just left hanging. Augustine thought that Christianity completed the thought of Plato because Christianity put those eternal ideas in the mind of God. Uh, and you, you even find Aquinas believing that Christianity was, was the answer to uh, the completion of Aristotle's system of thought. And in, in their, they had a lot in agreement, Aristotle and Plato, but they're, one started with universals, the other started with particulars. Yeah. And so there's a... a, a there, there is a... a this, this, uh, a discontinuity, a continuity between the thought of the two. But, uh, uh, anybody else there? Okay, Dave, I'll turn it over to you then. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't want to take control of it, but I, I did want to, I guess, start basically where you started. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll avoid the ontological argument because they didn't discuss it, so nobody here would know. And I, I don't even, I wouldn't even defend it anyway. <laughs> um, but I'll go ahead and go to a religious experience, mm-hmm. and all men need essential need for God, which is the um, idea. My question is, is even if everybody does feel the need for that God, is it the Christian God? Or is it the, there's the Buddha? No, there's, there's a, there, this is what philosophers would call transcendence. Uh, Karl, for instance, in the thought of Karl Marx, who was obviously an atheistic, materialistic atheist, uh, in his thought, he took the Hegelian view of history, the uh, dialectic, uh, that you have a, uh, you would have something, a thesis, you would have the opposite antithesis, and then a synthesis of the two. So you left the realm of absolute truths and and uh, so uh, Marx would even argue that capitalism was good for its time, but now you need the the opposite to come in communism, Marxism, and then a synthesis of the two, which would eventually be utopian society. But Marx's utopia that was his transcendence, something that transcends human experience, something that man is always seeking after and 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 uh, fighting for it. It's your ultimate. Uh, Paul Tillich, who was also classified as a, pretty much as a Christian atheist, or at least been classified as that uh, by others, uh, he talked about the ultimate. And, uh, and you find many of the uh, existential writers, uh, Heidegger, uh, uh, Sartre, there, there's something out there, there's this feeling of dread and, and, and this feeling of something that's out there that is beyond man. And uh, it's put in very, a lot of different terminology, but uh, Geisler's book, Philosophy of Religion, one-fourth of the book, deals with that. And more specifically, one chapter really deals with it to a T. And, and my dissertation, I'm, I'm alluding to it as well. But, but there's, what I was, the ones that I was quoting from were some of the most militant atheists that this world has ever known. Like people like Walter Kaufman, uh, the Secular Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and... So you're getting people that know what to believe. They believe God does not exist, but they they admit that their view. They say if man is honest and really looks at the situation, you know, one guy calls man the God intoxicated ape. Another guy calls uh, another guy says that uh, you know the biggest like Sartre, I believe, like, 
a uh, been a long time since I, since I read Start or even read people commenting on it, but I believe it was something along the lines that it was the big, the fact that God didn't exist was the big blow to him. And he really wished that God would have existed, but then he wouldn't. You know, because he, I tell you, he's a very, he's a more consistent atheist than a lot of atheists. He recognizes that if there is no God, and he believes there is no God, uh, then all objective meaning goes down the tubes. And so man comes into life, not designed by God with meaning and purpose, man comes into life as a question mark. Man has no essence. Uh, the definition of who you are, you, are, you come into life undefined, and therefore you must create, actualize, self-actualize yourself, create your own, your own meaning to life, because man desperately needs meaning to life. So when Sartre is saying that man has no meaning, but desperately needs it and can't exist without taking a leap of blind faith and creating meaning for his life by an act of his will, what he's basically saying, he's basically getting back to man's need for God. And he, but, but is that a need for God or is that a need for a purpose? Because there's uh, Sartre would see it as almost, almost uh, synonymous in, in that sense. And of course, he would argue that God does not exist. But, see, but, but Sartre would give me these promises that I just came up with. What he would say is that's the he'd say that's the dilemma a man is that you know and it's like Heidegger we're just thrust into existence of being towards death you know we we just thrust into existence and we know that it's inevitable we're going to die someday and it's like well, there's no meaning no purpose there and this is where the existentialists are coming from but I I think the I think that human reason coming through the Greek philosophers and finding their completion in uh, uh, Aquinas and, Ar and, uh, and Augustine, uh, human reason, I believe, as like Schaefer ordered in his book, although I disagree with some of the stuff he said in there, escape from reason. He sees the, the he refers to the philosophy, non-Christian philosophy today, as anti-philosophy. No longer is the philosophers were, were always, for the most part, essentialists. They believe that man's essence man comes into existence defined and that in a long way that has a big influence on his existence it draws the boundaries and all but now all of a sudden we've got existentialists who have just done a kind of a uh, Copernican uh, revolution in uh, philosophical thought where they say no man comes in undefined so now uh, uh, existence precedes essence. By the way, existence means that something is. That we exist. That something is. Essence means what something is. And all philosophers have tried to figure out what man is and the fact that what man is, the universal concept man had to come first before in particular man came about. That type of thing man comes into existence already defined and now you've got the modern philosophers uh, just fleeing that type of thing. The thing is, there's a, even a Catholic scholar, I'm not a Catholic myself, named uh, von uh, Hildegard, either Hildebrand or Hildegard, but he even stated that the big dilemma of modern man, what should be called really postmodern man, because modern man was the Rene Descartes, you could prove everything through reason. Most of your scientists say think like modern man, but they don't realize that that's the philosophy of 150 years ago. The philosophers today realize that there's like 
zero that we know with absolute certainty. And so that rationalism they thrown out the window. So now postmodern man is escaping from reason and is taking leaps of blind faith. But Hildegard, referring to postmodern man, calls him modern man, but says the dilemma of modern man is, he says two things, two mutually exclusive views. One is there is no, man cannot know absolute truth. Absolute, there probably are no absolute truths, but even if there is, even if there are absolute truths, we couldn't know them anyway. And then the other side of the point, he says, for science has invalidly proven certain things. In other words, it's an absolute truth that science knows certain things is absolutely true. So if you're going to throw absolute truths out the window, modern science has got to go with it. But there are very few absolute truths. Even the theory of gravity, if this pen dropped and didn't drop at 9.8 meters per second, that would be thrown out the door. It's a theory of gravity. Yeah, exactly. And and so, it, it's, a, it's a law, a law which is a theory accepted on a universal scale. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, a law, just a, a theory that's been found uh, universal acceptance. At the same time, we, uh, let's go even further on that. Because I, I, I would think I probably have less faith in, in modern science than even you do. Um, let's go even further. Uh, have they ever looked at gravity under a microscope? No. Okay, so number one, the science, modern scientist should not slam me for being believing in things in the invisible realm because he believes things that uh, cannot be seen. Number two... But it can be seen. It can't be looked at. The gravity itself cannot be seen, but the effects of gravity can be seen. That's what I'm saying. It's a cosmological argument for God's existence. You cannot see the invisible God, but you can see the effects or the work of his hands. And so when a Christian argues from effect to the cause, he's only doing what the scientist does when he argues for the law of gravity. Uh, but uh, secondly, uh, the, the other point that I wanted to make about modern science is, in actuality, they have never found gravity. All gravity is is the title that they give to this unknown, this unknown phenomenon that, that uh, yeah, this, this attraction, you know, it's like Gordon Clark, a Christian philosopher, who I did not agree, I do not hold as low a view of science as he does. Uh, but, uh, but I'll tell you, you read Bertrand Russell, The Problems of Philosophy, if you think scientists have all the answers, read Problems of Philosophy with Bertrand Russell. Because he asks questions like, what is matter? Uh, does reality exist? Is there just ten pages to each question. Is there a reality that exists outside our mind? And his answers, this was one of the greatest philosophers of this century. His answers, and even an atheist, his answers pretty much, uh, well, I don't... There's no way to prove it, but I, I really do think that there's a reality out there. In other words, it is science itself. You know, and, and people act like philosophy is speculative, and sci modern science is all just facts. Well, the fact of the matter is, before modern science can even get started, you need to assume you have to take, you have to answer certain philosophical questions before you can even start. Well, everything starts out with philosophy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then once something is set down as the base ground, for instance, math. Mm -hmm. um, one plus one is two. Well, it's tomorrow one plus one is three, not to start with the door. Yeah. yeah. You know? But the thing about it is, is if you take that as a set system, you can't really throw it out the door when God comes into play. Uh, you, can't, you can't explain it with God. You have to say, well, man invented it. No. No, the... Uh, 
the you see, cause, well, what, what you're saying then is that one plus one can equal three in the future. It does if we change the mass system. Yeah, but then we, we would be changing the total. Uh, is, is what, the axioms of uh, of math, which you're dealing with, there are self-defined things. So yeah, we could redefine something, but still the concept remains the same. For instance, we could right now Bachelor defines an unmarried male. We can ch arbitrarily change it, and Webster's dictionary can come out Bachelor. Uh, now means uh, a married male. Well, the, the concept really hasn't changed. It's just that we just changed, redefined it. But things that are true by definition are true by definition. Uh, the, the, the problem with them is, and those are the only things we know with certainty. The problem is it really doesn't tell us anything about the actual world. And, and that's where the dilemma is. And so I argue, am I, have you seen my debate for God in distance? No, I have not. Because I, I argue... Uh, I'll read you this paragraph here in my debate. Uh, it is my belief that one's faith should be based upon the evidence. Though I believe in the existence of the God of the Bible, I do not believe that his existence can be proven with mathematical certainty. However, one can argue that God's existence from premises that are beyond reasonable doubt. The denial of these pre premises is absurd, forced, and temporary. For instance, like when a philosophy professor denies the existence of morality, but then goes on living the rest of his life, acting like, uh, you know, moral values do exist, and you should feel guilty for wronging them. Uh, it's, like, it's like the guy who wrote, the, it's supposedly a true story, the guy who wrote a philosophy paper where he argued for the position that there is no such thing as right and wrong. And so the, it was a very well-written paper, and the teacher gave him an F. And he came up complaining. It was a well-written paper, and this and that, and all, and everything. And you gave me an F, and all. The teacher told, "Well, the reason why I gave you, oh, he wrote, the teacher wrote F. Uh, I don't like blue covers on papers handed in." And so the guy argued with him, left and right, this and that. It's just to be an arbitrary to just make a decision like that, and all that's not right, and all this other stuff. And the teacher said, and then all of a sudden it dawned on the student that he is arguing, he's appealing to a moral standard trying to convince the teacher that the moral standard does exist that you have violated when his paper was that there are no moral standards. So now the teacher took it and said, okay, this is one, I disagree with what you're saying, I just wanted to make a point, and told him it was one of the best papers he had written, and gave him the guy, crossed out the F and gave the guy an A. But if that guy still believes that moral values are relative, uh, then maybe he should have told him, no, just leave it an F and I'll go with that. Okay, watching the news this morning, I heard about this uh, sex ring, children's sex ring. Yeah. They didn't think it was wrong, but you do. So it was wrong for the by. Well, the, I, I'm not saying that uh, we're going by Adolf Hitler's morals or somebody else's morals. What I'm saying is there is an absolute standard. In the, in the atheist mindset, you don't have a way to judge over them other than the force of uh, law. Just Carry big guns. The guys who got the biggest gun. If Hitler's ruling, then what Hitler says is right. If uh, Ronald Reagan's ruling, then Ronald Reagan says what is right. That's the, the atheist. He, he goes right back to the uh, survival of the fittest mentality.